one to play a dramatic part, the kind that touches a woman's heart to make her cry for me to die. Did you ever get hit with a coconut pie? There's my argument. Restrict immigration. <laughs> It's the Marx Brothers Council podcast, and this is episode 62. Time for a somewhat overdue look at one of the more intriguing of the recent Marx-related home media releases. And in honour of Captain Spaulding, we're going to call it Blu-ray, Blu-ray, Blu-ray. Joining me as ever is the man with as good a claim as anyone to be called Noah Diamond, Noah Diamond. That's me. Nice to be back with you as always, Matthew. Although it feels like something's a little different this time, I something in the air. It's an air of portent, of deep significance. Right. I have the strangest sensation that we are being edited by an Emmy winner. Could could that be true? That's what could that possibly be true? Yes, indeed. Our own Bob Gassell, producer and editor of the Marx Brothers Council podcast has recently been honored with a nice piece of hardware, an Emmy Award for his work editing the 2022 Winter Olympic Games on NBC. Oh, not for the podcast, then. Congratulations, Bob. Oh, God. Okay, thank you, thank you. And yes, uh, I am quite uh, honored by all this, and so much so that I've decided to record, hit record this time when we started the podcast. <laughs> uh, you know, I think this all went to my head. I spent we spent twenty minutes doing a a nice podcast when I realized that I hadn't hit record. So this is take two, one more take, and we're in Eddie Decent territory. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, guys. But oh, I, I just want to clarify: I, I didn't win an individual Emmy. This was a team Emmy for the entire NBC sports crew who worked on the uh, Winter Olympics, and you know, I, I just played a small part. Still, it was a real thrill working on this event uh so that's it go on with your little podcast guys <laughs> <laughs> at least we had the pleasure of embarrassing you twice bob <laughs> well unless you've been living in the same cave as me for the past 20 years you'll know that the big thing in home entertainment these days is something called a blu-ray disc For years, home media technicians had been trying in vain to create a DVD that didn't work on DVD players. Many said it couldn't be done. Until in 2005, a humble Frenchman, Armand Bluret, finally hit on the magic formula. Here at last was a piece of software that necessitated not only the purchase of a whole new player, but in many cases a whole new television as well. And in honour of its inventor, grateful electronics manufacturers immediately named the disc the Armand. Numerous box sets of the Planet of the Apes series followed, until in 2021, the Film Preservation Society issued a double bill set to make many a Marx fan's mouth water. Too Many Kisses, a 1925 Richard Dix film featuring Harpo in the earliest known piece of film, I I believe I'm correct in saying, of, of a Marx brother professionally at work... And with it, The House That Shadows Built, a Paramount promotional movie from 1931 that features probably the single most important piece of Marx on film to be found anywhere outside of their official canon. We'll be taking a leisurely look at both these items today, but first I think a word about the the release itself is in order, because it says something interesting, I think, about the nature of Marx fandom. Clearly, Marx fans are the target here. There's, there's, There's no other possible reason why these films would have been offered together. Um, on the face of it, given that 
the the two movies combined offer less than 10 minutes of actual on-screen Marx brother. One could be forgiven for, for, for thinking that packaging it as a Marx release recalls that those kind of public domain sets that I'm, I'm sure we're all familiar with that are called things like the Laurel and Hardy collection. And then when you get them home, you find that the first disc is the stolen jewels. The second one is a bunch of trailers that look like they've been strained through a sieve. And the third one is three shorts from 1865 with just Hardy in them. But this isn't done in that sort of sneaky way. It's, it's, it's totally upfront and honest. And on the assumption that the target audience, A, will know exactly what they're getting, more importantly, what they're not getting, and B, will want to get it regardless. Does that say anything interesting, I wonder, about the comparative obsessiveness of Marx's fandom? Or is it just the old problem that Marx's material is so thin on the ground compared to the other great comedians that we're proportionately much more keen to snap up everything there is? I think both of those things are true, and and those are the main points about this release. Uh, on, On one hand, the scarcity of Marx Brothers material, the fact that it's a very limited pool to draw from, does mean that we who love them uh, are always grateful for any tiny crumbs that they've left behind, especially anything that's not part of the canonical set of films that we know so well. Um, On the other hand, uh, as you point out, this release is... Uh, quite different from anything that's come before. Probably uh, the resources and the kind of commercial viability of restoring a, you know, likable but not terribly important lighter-than-air silent comedy from 1925, you know, that probably came about specifically because of its historical importance, uh, given Harpo's participation. I, I think it's easy to be to be a, a little more jaded these days than than you know when we were first getting into the Marx Brothers in the in the 1980s or whatever I mean I imagine if this had come along then um too many kisses I'm I'm referring to specifically here you know it would have been explosively fascinating sadly its thunder has been stolen somewhat by the fact that most of the the Harpo material in it has has since been used in the documentary uh the unknown Marx Brothers but nonetheless it's 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 great to have it complete here and looking so nice and there are a couple of brief Harpo moments in it that that we hadn't seen before i mean i must admit i didn't kind of rush out the day it was released and snap it up largely because i don't have a have a blu-ray player um was this a high priority release for you Noah? it was i I was excited about this uh the the blu-ray came out in 2020 so it's a few years old now i was particularly excited about the house that shadows built which is the bonus feature attached to it as you mentioned and i know we'll talk about that film and the theatrical agency Marx Brothers scene within it uh, in in more detail a little bit later this episode. But that was the reason I couldn't wait to get my hands on this disc, because that piece of material, uh, given its history as part of I'll Say She Is, and um, given my history with I'll Say She Is, is uh, one of the closest to my heart of all pieces of Marx Brothers material. Uh, so I was really very excited about seeing a, a beautifully restored version of that scene. Um, it has not been seen in very good quality before this, because most of us uh, have seen it only in the kind of public domain releases you're talking about uh, in your introduction. You know, um, uh, I first saw it on a Good Times home video compilation of public domain clips and trailer clips. So to see the Marx Brothers performing that scene 
in really high quality sound and image um, was, uh, I couldn't wait and uh, it didn't disappoint me. Okay, so let's start with, with Too Many Kisses because that is the, the, the headliner on, on the disc. Um, as, you, as you said, it is uh, an extremely uh, light, uh, lighter than air, really, um, kind of romantic comedy. I mean, to, to call it frothy would, I think, place undue weight on froth. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 a pleasant, uh, it's a pleasant trifle, uh, very typical of its time. Um, I mean, simply the fact that you have an actor called Dix playing a character called Gaylord, I think takes you takes you back fairly safely to to uh to, to the 1920s not just dicks but richard dicks dick dicks <laughs> yes um it's about a playboy businessman who uh keeps getting in, in trouble with with breach of promise suits so his businessman father sends him to the basque country which is portrayed as a as a a, a backwater full of toothless peasants where he's not allowed to have any dealings with women for for six months it's got that kind of gimmicky plot that is familiar to, from from a lot of comedies from this time it's it's very pleasant some names in it that uh, might stand out the producer william LeBaron is a, a familiar name to paramount watchers but in particular is somebody that wc fields fans uh, have a great affection for because he appears to have been the person at paramount who who ensured that the door was always left open for fields apparently simply because he was a big fan and he kind of nurtured Fields' career. There's uh, William Powell is in the cast as the villain. The leading man, as as we've said, is Richard Dix, who was um, best remembered for kind of rugged outdoor heroes in westerns and adventure movies. He made lots and lots of movies, although he did uh, die at the age of just 58. He um, He was an alcoholic. Some of his better-known appearances include DeMille's silent version of The Ten Commandments, the 1929 version of Seven Keys to Baldpate, the Oscar-winning Western Cimarron, and Val Luton's little scene but highly recommended The Ghost Ship. And at the bottom of the cast list is Harpo Marx. Uh, he is right at the bottom, but nonetheless, he is named on the cast list. Uh, and he's also in inverted commas. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Harpo in quotes. Uh, this film comes from the Alsatias period when the stage names of the Marx Brothers were just beginning to leak out into the public consciousness, starting with Alexander Wolcott's famous review of Alsatias, in which he referred to Harpo as Harpo, but none of the other brothers were referred to by their nicknames. And Wolcott, as many of our listeners will know, was responsible for persuading the brothers to begin billing themselves as Groucho, Harpo, Chico, and Zeppo. And during the run of Alsatias, uh, particularly in press releases, you started to see the nicknames appear in print and, and in the papers. And very often, they would be in quotes. I guess they hadn't quite decided what the convention would be yet. Um, sometimes you would see things like Arthur, Harpo, Marx, you know, with Harpo between the names in quotes. Uh, sometimes it would just be Harpo in quotes, Marx. Um, and so this reflects that. Also, according to Robert Bader, it was Wolcott who got Harpo this gig into Many Kisses. He recommended Harpo to the director, Paul Sloan, uh, telling him if you have any little comic walk-on or something, put this guy on screen. Harpo apparently agreed to do the movie only if he could be billed as Alexander Wolcott. Uh, Harpo plays essentially the village idiot role, and uh, Harpo wanted the credits to say, village idiot, Alexander Wolcott. 
Uh, as it turned out, that what the credits say is Village Peter Pan, Harpo Marx. So he didn't quite get that demand met, but nice moment of prankishness between the two friends. So time frame wise, where are we in, in Harpo's legit career here? This is around the time of Alsatia's or during or after? or uh, The movie was released in January of 1925. Um, Alsatia's is just getting to the end of its Broadway uh, run and going back out on the road uh, first to Boston. It was filmed during the Broadway engagement of Alsatia's and it was filmed at the Paramount Astoria studio in Queens where the Marx Brothers would film Coconuts and Animal Crackers a few years later. So uh, years before Coconuts, Harpo had that experience of doing the Broadway show at night and then early in the morning going out to Queens and making a movie. He did that uh, four years before his brothers joined him. It's interesting, isn't it? Bearing in mind that there are are plenty of these these kind of um, Basque Village characters milling about in the background that nobody had the idea to to get all, all the brothers involved i mean do you, do you think the fact that harpo you know played a silent character may have had something to do with why he specifically was was selected i suppose so i think it's also likely it seems to me that there was a role in the script for this kind of comic relief character, um, and it was decided that Harpo would fit that part. And also knowing that Wilcutt was responsible for Harpo's presence in the movie uh, does, you know, that makes a certain amount of sense um, that Harpo would have gotten a sort of privileged uh, treatment because of Wilcutt's uh, affection for him. Um, Also, uh, we might mention the same year as Too Many Kisses, there was another Paramount silent comedy with the word kiss in the title that Zeppo had a small role in. It's called A Kiss in the Dark, starring Adolf Manju um, and uh, Eileen Pringle. And that is a, a, a largely lost film. I guess a couple reels of it have been discovered, but they don't include any of Zeppo's uh. appearance. So we don't know much about that. But that's a 1925 Paramount comedy with a Mark's brother cameo, and it came out just three months after Too Many Kisses. Glenn Mitchell quotes uh, Harpo, I think, via Leonard Maltin, saying that he he, he took some friends to to see the movie and uh, left after a couple of reels on the assumption that his his part had been cut. Whether that's true or not, it is certainly true that the bulk of Harpo's appearances uh, do occur in the last 15 minutes of the movie, but we do get three glimpses of him before that. The first one is uh, 10 minutes in when, when uh, Dix arrives at the, at the village to find the, the whole town in, in kind of mid-siesta. Uh, so we, we, we just get a shot of Harpo fast asleep, but I mean, it's easy to get carried away with this sort of thing, but it it it, uh, it is it does look like Harpo first asleep, doesn't it? It's he's not just he's not just a person first asleep. There is something Harpo-ish about this slumbering figure. Yeah, yes, and both times I've watched uh, too many kisses, uh, I've always been sort of jolted awake by his first appearance in that scene. It's like, oh, we are in the presence of greatness. Uh, yes, he looks just like himself, and um, it's exciting to see him. It's exciting to see footage that's not familiar of such a young Harpo. I mean, it's the youngest Harpo we have on film. Um, It's quite arresting. It's 
also interesting that when the film arrives at its main location in the Basque country, um, as you point out, we're in the middle of this kind of siesta, but it's not like everyone goes home to take a nap. It's like everyone falls asleep in the middle of whatever they were doing. There's all these (laughs) townspeople just kind of frozen and slumped over. You know, you can't help but be reminded of the uh, flit can scene at the end of the movie Animal Crackers and at the end of Act 2 of the stage version of Animal Crackers sort of feels like that's what happened here, even though we're still years away from Animal Crackers existing. We see him again 22 minutes in, in what is ostensibly a kind of dramatic confrontation scene between uh, Richard Dixon and William Powell sparring over the, the, the love of the heroine. Harpo is in the background throughout this, this scene. Uh, somewhat unfortunately, as far as the original point of the scene is concerned, he's positioned as if he's peeping over Richard Dix's shoulder. And he's, he's not exactly doing any business, but he again, he's unmistakably being Harpo here, isn't he? Yeah, absolutely. And it's when you see him in this film, I I get a strong sense of Harpo as just a funny guy, you know, just a guy who's really funny, someone you can't look away from. You are very interested in him as soon as he appears. You want to know what he's going to do. But because it's a silent movie and nobody speaks out loud, Harpo, like all the other characters, has dialogue with intertitles. what is normally one of the most special things about Harpo, his silence, is just not a factor here. You know, he's just a member of the cast. He doesn't have this strange aesthetic choice following him around all the time. And so you just get a feeling of Harpo as like the funny guy at the party. What's this guy going to do? I mean, it's, it, it's interesting, isn't it, that he is billed as, as the village Peter Pan. So they, they are, they have kind of, kind of singled him out as someone who's different even from the throng. He, they've given him that slightly kind of magical quality, which again is, is, is interesting when you, when you think how unevolved his character, you know, as, as we now know it was. It's, it's one of a number of things in here that, that does seem oddly prescient, isn't it? Uh, um, another one is, is his appearance. He's dressed as a peasant, he's wearing a smock and a beret. And again, it's, it's a costume that, that fits the Harpo we now know. Whereas if this had been any other Paramount romantic comedy, he would just as likely have been in a, in a, in a suit and a, and a fedora. So it seems like a strangely fortuitous coincidence that, he, that he's, he's allowed to, to kind of look like Harpo. It's also worth noting, of course, that he, that he is wearing a traditional Harpo wig, but one that is many shades lighter than the one he's bought in the coconuts. So it looks as though the so-called discovery that his usual wig uh, photographed too dark has already been made here uh, four years too early. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I dug into this a little bit and did some research. It turns out they actually dyed Harpo's real hair for this movie and <laughs> curled it. <laughs> it is interesting to see that, uh, the, the wig issue. And, and the costume, too. Um, yes, it has a fairy tale quality. It seems to me the thinking behind it must be that it's a kind of uh, storybook European version of a tramp costume and that's also something of the tradition that Harpo's normal costume comes from you know it's kind of the clothes of uh, an indigent person a a sort of fanciful street character um, with pretensions not as in Chaplin's case gentlemanly pretensions but sort of uh, 
pretensions of flamboyance, you know. Harpo always seems to be like a, a sort of a hobo-like character who has dressed himself raggedly but fancifully. But since Harpo doesn't have his usual costume here, just a suggestion of it, and since none of his um, material in this film consists of his normal things. He doesn't give anyone his leg, for example. Um, he doesn't produce uh, things from his uh, costume. He, he doesn't have any of the usual magic. And yet, he seems very magical. And it's a reminder that Harpo's magical quality had less than we sometimes think to do with his props, his costume, and his material, and had a lot to do with just his very presence, just the essence of who he was and how he comes across. He seems magical. Another thing he does quite a lot here that seems to kind of presage what we, we know of him from later is is um, kind of childlike imitation of what he sees other people doing. Uh, uh, Dix's character is very good at, at knife throwing at, at, at precise spots, uh, a skill he, he demonstrates at, at several points in the movie. Um, and at the end of this sequence, Harpo is seen rather kind of naively imitating his, his knife throwing. And again, uh, when we next see him, which is 35 minutes in... This is a sequence where, um, which he really doesn't need to be in at all. It, it is almost like somebody said, you know, we've got to make the most of this guy because he's great. Uh, there's really no need for him to be there. William Powell is serenading his, his lover uh, who's up on a balcony uh, and he's playing a guitar. And he decides to, to climb up to the balcony with a ladder and uh, Harpo is, has got the ladder. But when we first see him, Harpo is, is kind of strumming the, the steps of the ladder as if he too is, is playing the guitar. Yeah, that feels like a, a reference, uh, inadvertent perhaps, to something we're used to seeing Harpo do. It's interesting, too, that he, in his interactions with Richard Dix, uh, he's very much part of the scenery of this town where the story takes place. He's not, you know, he's in a supporting comic role in a movie centered on other people, but he's not a sidekick. He's not really a confidant to the Richard Dix character. Um, and since we're so used to seeing Harpo as Chico's sidekick and as a counterpart to Chico, it's interesting to see such an early Harpo, but he's kind of a loner, you know. This is a Harpo character who is really uh, a alone in the world, operates independently of the rest of the characters. Um, it's a sort of uh, free-floating Harpo. One of the surprising sort of absences from from this 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 village is is children. There are hardly I don't think there are any children there. One might have expected um, them to be swarming around him. You know, had there been any perhaps to, you know, further justify the, the village Peter Pan uh, idea. But I, I think I'm right in saying there aren't any kids knocking about, are there? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, yeah. I'd have to look at it again. Maybe there are a few in that siesta scene, but not that I recall. Mm. And you're right, you would think more would be made of them. Yeah. Well, anyway, his main scene begins about 48 minutes in, and this is after Dix has been kidnapped and tied up and imprisoned in the in the villain's cabin again harpo doesn't have a great deal to do he's only on screen for really a few a few seconds um, a minute or two at the most but i i spotted at least six characteristically harpo-esque things which is not bad going one is we get a lovely close-up of him and there aren't a, there aren't a lot of close-ups in in the movie of of the uh the background characters but we get a lovely close-up of him doing what we now know his characteristic vacant face 
his, his, his kind of, you know, his blank expression. We see him drinking from what I believe is called a poron, one of those uh, yeah. drinking vessels with a long spout that, that you, you pour out and catch in your mouth. That is, is you know, the, the kind of skill that we, that we see Harpo uh, doing later on. We see him being lasparied, as it were, by the, the, the villainous Francesco character. And sort of flung out of the uh, of the cabin, and and one almost expects Kitty Carlisle to to scoop him up. He he then takes appropriately Lasparish revenge by uh, ensuring that the, the the character is defenseless before before knocking him out. And then lastly, we get a, a lovely shot of him doing his kind of mock swagger as he walks away, which is a, a, another gesture that we're, we're very familiar with. Incredible, really, that he, that he managed to pack all that in to, uh, to such, such, such unpromising uh, base material. Yeah, I mean, it turned out to be a good gamble to put him in this film. Um, and I guess, if, I guess it's just the fact that the Marx Brothers career was really taking off at this point. You know, we're, we're right in the Asseshias period. So they are just getting hotter than they'd ever been before. If that were not the case, if somehow this opportunity had come along for Harpo even just a couple of years earlier, uh, this might have been the direction that he went in. You know, it seems to me he's very effective in this film. Um, and publicity materials don't make a big deal out of him, but a lot of the reviews do. I mean, a lot of the reviews say, oh, and, and Too Many Kisses also gives you a chance to get a glimpse of Harpo Marx from this is stage success. I'll say she is. And, and now surely uh, the film community will celebrate him the same way the stage community has been over the last couple of years. I, I, would, I, I would think that that's true. The Marx Brothers were at such a low point before I'll say she is. Um, and of course, if this gig indeed came through Woolcut, it is a result of I'll say she is and couldn't have happened before. But it, it does seem like uh, this could have been it for Harpo. This could mm. have been the direction he went in. It is an interesting sort of halfway uh, use of him, isn't it? I mean, he's obviously he, he's used far more than that character demands, and, and he is he is made the focus far more than that character demands. But on the other hand, far less than you might expect of somebody whose part was being deliberately built up. Yeah, it's true. Yes, both both things are true. On one hand, uh, he's great in the movie. It's great to see him. And um, that account that Harpo gave in Harpo Speaks of the very small size of his part turned out to be, um, you know, a little undersold. I mean, turns out there's not much of him in the movie, but there is more of him than he told us there was. And uh, so, you know, it, it falls somewhere in the middle. And of course, we should point out that if anyone hasn't seen the, the movie, uh, it is in this sequence that we get, via the magic of intertitles, Harpo's only lines of screen dialogue. And for the record, they are Francesco and You Sure You Can't Move? Yeah. It's not George S. Kaufman, I seem to recall uh, uh, Leslie Nielsen saying in, in the narration from uh, the Unknown Marx Brothers. <laughs> But yeah, he he does speak on film here, and um, and we'll always have that. <laughs> and then the film ends with a with a, a costume fiesta that inevitably conjures up uh, memories of the finales of of both the coconuts and the stage version of Animal Crackers. Yeah, and and Harpo, you know, he from from here, you know, on one hand, it would be four years before we got 
a Marx Brothers movie. Um, and this just seems to have faded away. I mean, you never see it referred to in any uh, contemporary accounts of the early Marx Brothers films. Um, and I suppose partly this is the disposable nature of, of film at the time, particularly light entertainment. Um, we should just say for completeness that it, it has been suggested in the past that, that Zeppo is also to be glimpsed somewhere amidst the throng. Uh, I presume in, in these final sequences, I looked again this time and I didn't spot anyone who could even be mistaken for him. Did, did you even try? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, I have looked at all the faces. But no, I think the idea that Zeppo is in this movie must come from confusion about A Kiss in the Dark. Uh, because, you know, Zeppo did have a cameo in another Paramount film that came out just a few months later and had the word kiss in the title. Uh, so I, I think that must be the origin of, of that rumor. Okay, let's move on then to the, the supporting feature, The House That Shadows Built. This is a film from 19... Sorry, did you want to say something? Yeah, can I, I just want to add something before yes, we move on. Yes, of course, on. yeah, yeah. That... Uh, as released on this Blu-ray from Film Preservation Society, Too Many Kisses has this additional uh, Marxian element, which is a new score composed and performed by Bill Marx. Uh, he wrote music for uh, Too Many Kisses, and he plays it on Harpo's piano, on Harpo's 1935 Steinway. Um, and it's nice. Bill, unsurprisingly, did a fine job with this score, uh, particularly the title theme that he created for it that plays during the credits um, is is quite wonderful. And um, that's another indication, as you pointed out at the top of the show, that the main appeal of this film now is the Marx Brothers, the Harpo Marx uh, element. Uh, but having Bill score it and play the score on Harpo's piano um, is uh, a nice extra thing for those of us who love the Marxes. Indeed. Let's move on then to The House That Shadows Built, the, the companion uh, film on, on this disc. This is um, a compilation made in 1931, which was intended to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Paramount Pictures. So it was a kind of a promotional film. Apparently, it was never intended for theatrical release and never had a theatrical release. It was just for exhibitors to, to kind of sit and watch, which seems like a, an odd thing to do with, with something that obviously must have had a certain amount of money spent on it but anyway that appears to be the case the film begins with a look at the studio's past and then it moves on to previews of forthcoming releases some of which are merely listed by name and some of which we get to see a little of in uh, what is ostensibly work in progress. There are films here which ended up considerably differently. There are also some which didn't end up at all, uh, including uh, a Marlena Dietrich vehicle, which is to be titled An Entirely Different Woman, which was never made. Uh, there's also a, another film which is identified simply by title The Man with Red Hair. This too was never made, and if I may be permitted, a brief digression. This must have been a planned adaptation of the play version of Hugh Walpole's novel Portrait of a Man with Red Hair, which had secured 
Charles Lawton, one of his earliest stage triumphs in London. This was a real shocker in which Lawton played a lunatic who kidnaps, binds and tortures his victims to assuage a lifetime's humiliation regarding his ugliness and red hair. Paramount were at this point signing Lawton to a Hollywood contract and tailoring him for villainous and monstrous roles. So this must surely have been intended as a part of that early batch of titles that included Devil in the Deep, Island of Lost Souls and White Woman. Uh, the play had been written by Ben Levy, who turns up as screenwriter both of Devil and the Deep, the first of Lawton's Paramount vehicles, and also The Old Dark House, the loan-out to Universal that was shot immediately prior. What's more, the director of The Old Dark House, James Whale, had played the son of the Lawton character in the stage version of Man with Red Hair. So this unmade film uh, is a loss greatly to be mourned. But returning to films with with Mark's interest that appear here, well, Chevalier's there, of course. Um, there's a couple with Kay Francis. And there's von Sternberg's version of an American tragedy, the film that Groucho references in the canoe scene in Horse Feathers. You know, this is the first time I've been out in a canoe since I saw the American tragedy. Furthermore, there's a very slight, but I think on balance worth pointing out, echo of a moment in the forthcoming monkey business in this moment from the shadows built extract clyde promise me you'll never leave me of course i won't darling never never i don't know what i'd do if you did kill myself i think i'll never leave you honest i won't bird i swear bird i'll never leave you now, given that he goes on to kill her, the, the line, Berta, I'll never leave you, is heavily charged with irony. Um, is there any possibility, then, that it may have been considered a memorable line and provided inspiration, conscious or unconscious, intended or unintended, for this line from Monkey Business, which trades in a similar irony, albeit in this case instant and for laughs? Does it matter to you whether you ever see me again? I can't think of anything in the world that matters more. Mary, I'll never leave you. So that brings us to the the Marxist contribution to this film, which is supposedly a work in progress from monkey business. Uh, in actual fact, it's it's nothing of the sort. And the reason for that is because there wasn't much work progressing on monkey business at all. This was uh, a very, very difficult film to to, to get off the ramps uh, as their, their first screen original, their first uh, Hollywood movie. There seems to be an awful lot of indecision about it, uh, a lot of which I, I document in the, uh, the annotated Marx Brothers. There is a famous poster that was issued to promote it, which is, is almost almost entirely um, uh, bogus, which says uh, it starts with the Marxes as stowaways on an ocean liner with the whole ship's company in pursuit. So far, so good. Uh, Arrived in New York, they interview the ship reporters sent to interview them, then embark for Florida by request. Having wrecked a millionaire's home, family and nerves there, Groucho psychoanalyzes a horse in his well-known style. From there on, it gets louder and funnier. Frank Tuttle will direct. So it's uh, easy enough to conclude from that that uh, there wasn't a lot of monkey business around to preview. So instead, we get something entirely different. What do we get now? Well, what we get is a vaudeville scene, a scene from the brothers' vaudeville years, uh, 
And thank God Monkey Business didn't have anything ready to share at this point because uh, they wound up preserving a very important piece of earlier material. Um, I also just want to mention uh, Frank Tuttle, who uh, was perhaps to be the director of Monkey Business per that item. He was the director of A Kiss in the Dark, the 1925 Mm. silent film that Zeppo appeared in. Also, Frank Tuttle looked a lot like Groucho for whatever that's worth. (laughs) Yes, he did. Uh, (laughs) Marx Brothers fans uh, are largely familiar with this scene because it has been so ubiquitous in the kind of public domain collections we discussed earlier. Um, And as soon as the YouTube era began, that was the place to see this scene. And um, many fans understand it to be from I'll Say She Is. It's often referred to that way, the scene from I'll Say She Is that they recorded on film for Paramount in 1931. Um, Well, it is true that the scene was in I'll Say She Is, but it really predates I'll Say She Is. The theatrical agency scene is from On the Mezzanine, the last major vaudeville tab that the brothers did prior to the beginning of the I'll Say She Is project. On the Mezzanine, also occasionally called On the Mezzanine Floor or On the Balcony, Uh, It's really a very important moment in their career, this particular tabloid, because it's the first time the brothers shed the roles that they'd been playing in vaudeville up to that point. The roles that were created for the schoolroom act, fun in high school, um, Groucho as the elderly school teacher who had various names and even more than one uh, dialect over the years, but was always basically the same character. uh, an immigrant and an elderly man. In On the Mezzanine, for the first time in the beginning of 1921, Groucho is playing his own age, a sort of first-generation New York wise guy. Um, it's also the beginning of the grease paint Groucho, the first uh, character he played who had that mustache. Uh, there's a line in On the Mezzanine where Groucho is describing himself on the phone to somebody who he has to meet. So he has to convey what he looks like. And Groucho says, did you ever see Lincoln without a beard? Well, I look like Washington with a mustache. So it's right there in print. You know, there is a mustache on this face. Uh, That starts with On the Mezzanine. Uh, Harpo and Chico, although their characters perhaps didn't change quite as much as Groucho's, uh, also had this kind of update. Um, On the Mezzanine was what we would now characterized as a reboot. It was a Marx Brothers reboot, you know, uh, new characters, uh, new situations. And of course, it was replacing material that had largely been developed by the Marx Brothers with Uncle Al Sheen, who had written Home Again for them, and who served as the um, the primary influence, especially on Groucho's character, uh, a Dutch comic doing mostly a German accent and and playing elderly. So as this need for new material arises, the Marx Brothers needed a new collaborator. They needed a new father figure to replace Uncle Al and help them craft this new act. And they went to Herman Timberg. Herman Timberg was the writer and director and producer of the original On the Mezzanine. And I'm always grateful for any opportunity to talk about him because I think Timberg is really one of the great uh, unacknowledged or underacknowledged creators of the Marx Brothers act and particularly of the Groucho character. The same kind of credit we give George S. Kaufman for playing a role in, in 
inventing that character, um, we should be attributing to Herman Timberg. He was a bright shining light of vaudeville and Broadway. He was a multi-hyphenate who wrote songs and wrote comedy sketches. He was a director. He was a star. He was a dancer. He was a musician. Um, and I think it's likely that today we would remember him as one of the greats if only there were more of him on film. There's very little of Timberg for us to actually see and hear. He made a few movies, some of which have survived in fragments, and there's a couple of sound recordings. I'd like to play right now this little tiny piece of a recording from 1927, um, which is called Any Time At All, not the... Uh, Anytime at all that you may know from the Beatles catalog much later. Uh, a song called Anytime at All, and it has this little spoken piece in the middle of the recording. Um, not that it's anything so wonderful, but I just want to play it so we can hear what Herman Timberg's voice sounded like. Oh, pardon me, Mr. Timberg. The manager of the studio told me your selection was dragging, and he wants me to pick it up. Why, I didn't finish playing it yet. I know, but he said I'm to sing a blues song. Oh, that's a novelty. <laughs> oh, but I sing a different kind of a blues song. What do you mean, different kind? I think it's low. The low? Lazy. Lazy. Low down. Low down? Wicked. I drag it out. Would you like to hear it? Go ahead. Play it out. So that's the voice. And if you look at publicity pictures, photographs, and drawings of Tim Burke during his vaudeville years, you see a man wearing glasses, smoking a cigar, <laughs> hunched over, with a sort of predatory, wise guy sneer on his face. Um, and it seems rather unmistakable that he is a prototypical Groucho Marx character. You listen to that voice and you can hear that too, a little bit of a velvety back-of-the-throat sound. He also is very reminiscent of Eddie Cantor. Um, and Timberg, in his work on On the Mezzanine, was the first person ever to write for that Groucho character, that version of Groucho, the one with the mustache, the one who went on to do all those plays and films. Timberg had two siblings who are also part of this story. His sister, Hattie Timberg, worked under the stage name Hattie Darling, and she was the ingenue of On the Mezzanine. She was romantically involved with Benny Leonard, the boxer who put up much of the money to produce On the Mezzanine and also played a role in its early outings. Uh, and Timberg's brother was Sammy Timberg, who was part of the vaudeville act with his siblings, but later became a composer of some renown. Uh, he wrote a lot of music for Fleischer cartoons, including the familiar themes from Popeye and Betty Boop and Superman. Timberg at some point started to transition away from being uh, a performer and a star in his own right and became a very generous provider of material to other stars. He wrote and directed for Fanny Bryce, George Jessel, Clark and McCullough, Benny Rubin, Our Gang, and The Three Stooges. And On the Mezzanine is his little outing with the Marx Brothers. When we watch the theatrical agency scene, it feels very Marx Brothers. You know, it's unmistakably a piece of Marx Brothers material. But what might be less obvious to us is that it is also very Herman Timberg. It is real vintage Herman Timberg material, particularly in its milieu, which is this theatrical environment. Timberg always wrote about uh, agents and managers and showgirls and producers. Most things he wrote took place in a, a, a Broadway setting. 
And perhaps even more than that, there is the syncopated rhyming dialogue, which is the thing about the scene that is the most unlike other Marx Mm. Brothers material. But it's a lot like other Herman Timberg material. Uh, He tended to do that, to write these rhyming patter pieces. Um, Critic for Variety referred to it as jazz talk. Um, And even though the rhyming dialogue particularly did not become a Marx Brothers trademark, I still think it's significant that this is the way the Marx Brothers arrived at the modernity we now associate with them, you know, this rapid rhythmic jazz patter. And certainly, although rhyme became less important later, uh, this idea of like spoken dialogue that that almost seems like it sort of... um, anticipates rap music, you know, as like spoken (laughs) metered dialogue in rhyme, um, does seem to have something to do with what the Marx Brothers are becoming in 1921 and what they became after the 20s. I suspect Timberg had an easy time writing for Groucho because it was the same kind of material that he would write for himself. And after On the Mezzanine, the brothers bought the material from Timberg for $10,000. So they owned it. And it appeared in their final vaudeville tab, the 20th Century Review, and then in I'll Say She Is. One final note about this piece of material, and specifically its context in On the Mezzanine, which gets a little bit lost when the scene is watched by itself on film, or even as it was used in I'll Say She Is. Uh, As you probably know, the scene involves the Marx Brothers one by one entering a talent agent's office and delivering impressions of the same famous star. Uh, Originally, it was Joe Frisco, and then it varied. It wound up being, as you know, Maurice Chevalier in The House That Shadows Built anticipating the Chevalier impressions in monkey business. Um, So it has this built-in set of entrances for all four brothers, much the way Animal Crackers brings them on one at a time with specific funny entrances. And it also notably brings them on in ascending order of stardom at the time. You know, Zeppo, then Chico, then Groucho, and then Harpo, who was unambiguously the star of the act at this point. At the end of the scene, Zeppo starts urging the agent to produce this play he has written. Zeppo pulls a script out of his pocket and he starts saying, oh, you've got to take a look at this play. It's a great play. And these guys, the three other Marx brothers, would fit into it. Um, and the scene ends, the scene as we know it, ends with Zeppo pushing, uh, pitching this play. On the Mezzanine proceeded from there. That was the first scene. The second scene of On the Mezzanine was that play, the play that Zeppo is pitching in the first scene. So first of all, this is a very novel structure. I mean, it's very bold for 1921. It's a really interesting idea. Um, The second scene, which was Zeppo's play, involved uh, Zeppo as Groucho's son, which is something we would see in some of the later films, Zeppo as Groucho's son, Groucho trying to get his son married off to the wealthy daughter of a woman who owns a hotel. The woman who owns the hotel, played by Saba Shepard in a pre-Margaret Dumont uh, dignified dowager role. So just the, the unusual quality of that premise, the innovative structure of On the Mezzanine, and the fact that this scene outlived it by many years... Uh, makes it just one of the most important pieces of Marx Brothers material there is. 
But fortunately, you don't even really have to know how important it is because it's also really entertaining. It's great Marx Brothers material in addition to being uh, historic and important. It is really great stuff, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's much. it would be absolutely unbelievably fascinating if there wasn't a laugh in it. Uh, but on top of everything else, it really, really is good stuff. So, so what have we learned from that, listeners? Well, we've learned that uh, Timberg really does belong uh, in in the pantheon with with Johnston and uh, and and Kaufman. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, among people who were not Groucho Marx, the people most responsible for Groucho Marx's familiar character, I think we'd have to say, are Al Sheen, Herman Timberg, Will B. Johnston, and George S. Kaufman. And uh, do, do we think Groucho was, was paying him a, a subtle homage in that, that moment in uh, Go West when he shouts, Timberg! <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. I never considered it. But, you know, in those famous uh, publicity pictures from On the Mezzanine, uh, there are fo- two photographs from December of 1921 uh, that I and others have referred to as history's first glimpse of the Marx Brothers as we know them, uh, that those are the first pictures with Groucho in grease paint um, and and the other brothers looking reasonably close to their film characters. In one of those pictures, Groucho is wearing a bowler hat, which is not characteristic Groucho as far as we know, uh, but it was a Timberg thing. Timberg often appeared in a bowler hat. So uh, who knows? Maybe that was uh, some homage to Timberg. I also might mention here, as far as uh, variations on Timberg's name, that um, when we were in rehearsal for the 2016 production of I'll Say She Is, uh, we were working on the Napoleon scene, and Seth Sheldon, playing Harpo, arrived at um, an exit where he crawled off stage on all fours. Well, that was a trademark of Herman Timberg's. It was known in vaudeville as the Timberg Crawl-Off. Uh, exiting sort of crushed and defeated on all fours. Um, and when Seth did that in rehearsal, I wasn't sure if he knew about the Timberg crawl off and was knowingly paying tribute. And I said out loud in the room, ah, oh, that's the Timberg crawl off. But uh, I was misunderstood and uh, everyone thought I was saying the Tim Burton crawl off. <laughs> so uh, ever since then, anytime somebody is crawling around on the floor, I say, ah, oh, it's the Tim Burton crawl off. <laughs> You mentioned that that um, the 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 subject of their impersonations varies from from incarnation of the scene to to incarnation of the scene. Obviously, in in this version, we get Maurice Chevalier, and the song is um, "You Brought a New Kind of Love to Me." So that's obviously extremely important because that's the only link that we have between this sequence and the film that is ostensibly uh, being made here, which is which is Monkey Business. What strikes me as interesting, though, is that. It seems to me that Chevalier has been chosen here for the same reason that the, the previous changes to that to that personality that they impersonate is chosen because uh, Chevalier is currently the hottest thing. He's a big Paramount name. Uh, he's a singer, so he would be the the natural choice. So it feels like. Uh, the use of Chevalier here, especially when we remember that that monkey business really was was nowhere near planned at this point, has actually emerged organically from this sequence rather than, than from anything that they might have already planned for monkey business. So in actual fact, it's gone the other way. And it's the, the Chevalier scene, which many of us think of as one of their very best scenes of, of all, probably owes its inspiration 
to their desperation here. Yeah, very much so. Um, yes, a couple of things about that. Uh, one is that Joe Frisco, who was a popular buck and wing dancer of the time, uh, was the original set of impressions done when this scene was introduced. Then it became Gallagher and Sheen, uh, which is kind of interesting. The Marx Brothers, you know, mocking Gallagher and Sheen. Um, when they did this scene in England, they did impressions of Charlie Chaplin. Those are the ones we know about, but it's very likely that other impressions were done in this scene at various times in its life. Um, but it wasn't quite as simple as just putting in a different set of impressions and material that fit them because of the rhyming nature of this dialogue. Uh, Chico's name in the scene has to rhyme with the name of whatever celebrity they're impersonating. Yes. What do you do? Acrobats. What's your name? Tamalia. But the best thing I do is give imitation of Chevalier. So when it was Gallagher and Sheen in the I'll Say She Is typescript, Chico says that his name is Sabisco Chicoline, so that it rhymes with my impression of Gallagher and Sheen. Uh, we don't know what Chico's name was when the impression was <laughs> Chaplin, uh, but Mikhail Aline uh, suggested rather convincingly that maybe it was something like Napolin, a, a yeah. vaguely Italian name that sounds like Chaplin. Uh, so that's interesting. There was this editorial work to be done in order to incorporate a new impression. Uh, there also is just one small point I must correct you on, Matthew. There is one ah. other fragment of monkey business that finds its way in here, and it's the line, there's my argument, restrict immigration. Ah, uh, yes, of course, yes. Which is not in the scene as it appeared in vaudeville or in I'll Say She Is. Um, so maybe that line is in monkey business because they came up with it here or vice versa. Hmm. Well, let's just uh, take a, a, a close look at then at this scene uh, as we have it as a, as a as a piece of 1931 cinema. Firstly, uh, let's let's nail down the cast. The agent, who I think it, it's fair enough to say isn't all that good at delivering the, the rhyming dialogue, is usually credited as Ben Taggart, who plays the ship's captain in Monkey Business. But we decided in the group a while back that it's much more like Davison Clark, who plays the passport official. So that's who I'm sticking with. As to Glenn Mitchell's suggestion that the girl in it might be Ruth Hall. I lean towards unlikely, uh, but I think there's there's too little footage to be sure either way, really. So anyway, let's 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 look at the the scene. We begin with with Zeppo coming in, and you you have to ask, is this the best Zeppo performance we have? He's uh, he's zany, he's dominant, he plays to the camera, he, he's he's on fire actually, isn't he? <laughs> Yeah, he really is. And, and he's out first, right in front, but he's not quickly dispensed with, you know. It's not like Zeppo comes on and introduces Groucho and disappears. Yeah, he, he has stuff to do. He has a very important role here, in fact, because he delivers the impression first. He kind of does it straight. He shows you what it's supposed to be like um, so that when his brothers follow and repeat the impression, uh, they are... In, in a way, they are parodying what Zeppo has just done more than they're parodying the, the actual Chevalier. Uh, also, this is one moment where the restored version on the Blu-ray, you know, it's just so beautiful. We're so used to seeing this scene as a kind of very uh, flickering, washed out, ghostly image. But in the restored version, Zeppo comes out. You can just see his face so clearly. You can see that he is standing on a very artificial-looking set. You know, the set is sort of brazenly uh, theatrical. Um, and a 
modern equivalent to it would be like a Saturday Night Live sketch. You know, it has that level of production value to it. Um, and boy, you really feel in this restored version like these are stage performers doing what they do and and happening to have a camera in front of them. Uh, it, it feels like early stage rather than early cinema. He also gets to do more of the song than he does in the movie. It might be the most sustained bit of of artful Zeppo singing as opposed to speak singing that we have. In in the movie, none none of them except Groucho get past better than they do. But but in in this version, Zeppo gets to do the full uh, You Brought a New Kind of Love to Me as well. If a nightingale could sing like you, they sing much better than they do. Cause you brought a new kind of love to me. And no stronger evidence that he was uh, ever fitted to be the radio crooner that he apparently uh, tried to be at some point. But but nonetheless, you know, a, a sustained bit of singing that is that is clearly him. Yes, and and the, his physical performance is great too. When he's doing the song, you know, he has moves. Um, he delivers it very gracefully mm. and. Uh, and looks great. Uh, we also might mention that this song uh, is significant. You brought a new kind of love to me. Chevalier sang it in the Paramount film, The Big Pond, which was released, I think, in 1930 or 31, right around this time. So it was very current and, and all the rage. But it was written by Irving Cajal and Sammy Fain, songwriters who met and started working together in 1926 when they were both writing for Gus Edwards' vaudeville act. Gus Edwards being the vaudeville impresario who gave Groucho some of his early breaks and who also created School Days, also known as School Boys and Girls. That was the original school act that inspired the Marx Brothers to basically rip it off and and do fun in high school. Herman Timberg was the star of the original school act, Ah. uh, School Days. The song School Days, Dear Old Golden Rule Days, was introduced by Herman Timberg. Um, and so even though Timberg was a couple of years younger than Groucho, in, in that vaudeville moment, he was always kind of a couple of steps ahead of the Marx Brothers, uh, to the point where they were really imitating Timberg's work with Gus Edwards when they started their school act. And in fact, an early review of Fun in High School, a very positive review, uh, says that it's the best school act seen in vaudeville since Herman Timberg was in the Gus Edwards act. Now, Timberg didn't have anything to do with the inclusion of this song, you know, because in 1931, it's been many years since Timberg had any connection with this material. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, it's a nice connection. And it's a song that uh, I'm sure many of our listeners, like us, just forever think of as a Marx Brothers song, even though it's only somewhat that. Checo enters next, but as you uh, quite rightly said earlier, that isn't it for Zeppo. Zeppo's most important uh, contribution to the scene is is still to come, uh, and that in itself is extremely unusual. If this was uh, Animal Crackers, not only would that now be it for Zeppo, but we'd probably see him leave the room uh, in, in, the, in the back of one of the scenes. Um, but nonetheless, uh, Chico does come in here. Um, he's very, very strongly uh, dialect humour, as as one would expect from the, 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 the vintage of the of the sequence uh w- one of his lines though i think is is uh one of his most cherished all-time classic lines well i'm the guy you want to guess and i'll speak very good english but i'm full of the pep and i got the ambition yes. <laughs> 
Um, he also gives my, my absolute favourite uh, mangled version of the song. Uh, he, he actually says, when the nightingale, they look like you, <laughs> which, yeah. is, which is far sillier than, than anything that, that makes it into, into monkey business. When the nightingale, they look like you. That's enough. Yes, it's also just so such great classic Chico that he's not even trying. I mean, he's not yes. even <laughs> attempting to impersonate Chevalier. He's just getting by on charm and, and good looks <laughs> and just coming out and barely even singing the song. Yeah, just, just boundless, misplaced confidence. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you can really see why they stuck with this piece of material so long. It's a very mm. good showcase for them. Uh, now, when Groucho comes in, again, we, we, we get more kind of dialect uh, stuff than we're used to from him. Uh, you're, you're kidding me, aren't you not? And so on. Uh, we also do get a, a little bit of that German inflection, don't we? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yes, Groucho begins this scene with an accent, which he drops pretty quickly. I want to speak to Mr. Lee. I'm a dramatic actor. No, I see. I'm Mr. Lee. Well, lend an ear to me. Can you play a role? Can I play a role? Do you know who you're looking at? No. Caesar's ghost. Uh, I, I don't know more about this. I've, I've often wondered. My conclusion, which is shaky, is that he's just sort of putting on a sort of actorly accent there, that maybe he's being Russian, really, and he's supposed to be like a Russian art theater personality, or at least he's trying to come across that way in, in the first moments of his audition. Or maybe, indeed, it is a reversion to the, the Dutch uh, comic that he had previously been. Uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting and a, a kind of enigmatic to me, uh, that accent that Groucho has for his first few lines in the scene. Mm. He also has a brick in his pocket, doesn't he? Which is which is something we would expect of Harpo, but not, not of yeah. him. Yes, that, in that gag, the, um, the agent says, give me a break. And Groucho pulls a brick out of his coat and, and hands it to him and says, a brick? Here's a brick. I always carry one for this imitation. And it's, yes, you're right. It's It's very much a Harpo gag. Maybe the fact that it's a relatively early piece of Marx Brothers material uh, is the reason why uh, it, it went to Groucho. It is interesting that in the scene, the way we're used to seeing it in the unrestored version, um, it's also blurry and high contrast. It really is a surprise when Groucho pulls the brick out of his coat. In the restored version, he very obviously has something <laughs> under his coat. The minute he walks in, he looks <laughs> very bulky. And um, I don't know if you'd notice it if you didn't know about it. But um, whenever I see the restored version, I always think, oh, there's Groucho's brick, which we'll see in a few minutes. <laughs> I'll add that in my experience performing the scene in the revival of I'll Say She Is, I always had a hard time with that brick because it's... Groucho's first appearance in the show. So this is my, it was my entrance as Groucho. Um, and it was always a, a big thing coming on for the first time in the show as Groucho. He, I won't say I, but he tended to get entrance applause. And I always wanted it to be a big moment. But, you know, as it is, I'm a slightly thicker man than Groucho was. And it was always important to me to try to look as thin as possible in I'll Say She Is. And that brick wasn't helping, you know, having that brick in my coat. <laughs> I just felt it just pushed me over the edge <laughs> to being like 5% too wide to look like Groucho. And I worked a lot to figure out a way to get the brick behind me <laughs> and, and still be able to pull it out quickly enough for the gag so that I would 
you know, look my true thinness <laughs> when I first entered. Uh, it's a foam brick, of course, uh, that's very lightweight, and, you know, you could just throw it when you're done with it. And uh, I happen to have it right here. It now sits above my desk, uh, <laughs> which is a much more comfortable place to have it than in my coat. Who did you do imitations of at the end? Did you do Chevalier? For our revival of Alsatius, we chose Al Jolson. Uh, ah. I don't have any evidence that the Marx Brothers ever impersonated Al Jolson in this scene. But it seemed to me that was the choice that made the most sense. It was somebody who was a big star at the time of I'll Say She Is who would still be recognizable to audiences now. Um, and so it would work. I thought, you know, doing an impression of Joe Frisco just doesn't make sense. It'll just confuse the audience. Uh, Chevalier would be the more familiar choice, but the song... And in fact, Chevalier's American stardom doesn't happen until 1930. So it would be too early to do uh, in, in our 1924 production to, right. to do Chevalier. In the excerpts from the show that are on YouTube, there's a, a reel of highlights. Um, and there's a, pieces of this scene are, are in that video. And in the comments on YouTube, sometimes somebody will say, oh, it's supposed to be Chevalier. You shouldn't have changed it. You know, you should have gone with the original. Uh, and uh, I guess there was always some risk of people thinking that we had taken uh, pointless liberty, but that's the reason. So no part of you entertained for a second the idea of stepping out of period entirely and doing somebody contemporary at the end? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, we No, we didn't consider that. But, you know, the guiding principle of that production was, you know, we're going to keep things as much as we can to 1924. And if we're going to incorporate other Marx Brothers material, it should be material that predates I'll Say She Is. Uh, we did break that rule a, a little bit, you know, like Chico's costume, for example. We had him in his, the costume he wore from Animal Crackers Forward. But in some other production that had a different set of aesthetic choices, sure, you could do it that way, uh, absolutely, and, and impersonate, you know... Kendrick Lamar, if you chose to. <laughs> I have no idea who that is. <laughs> a a post-Chevalier musical star. <laughs> Didn't know there were any. Um, so then uh, Harper comes in, and as, as you say, it's very much uh, the entrance to the, of the star, to the extent that, that delightfully they all cheer yeah. when he comes in, which is a lovely moment, isn't it? Everyone's so happy to see him. <laughs> and Groucho, strangely enough, starts saying "poop poop padopi," mm. "poop poop padopi," very ungroucho like. Uh, yeah, but that's his greeting for Harpo. And then they go into a kind of a semi version of the the coconuts uh, circling greeting, and then uh, Chico and Harpo do the the kind of arm slapping uh, hug. Uh, yeah. So it's 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 quite a joyous moment, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, as with much of Coconuts and Animal Crackers, there's a strong sense of that this is them on stage. Hoppo then, um, su surprisingly, perhaps for people who've, who are familiar with monkey business, does, does a, a, a brief dance to, uh, to um, uh, You Brought a New Kind of Love to Me. They obviously hadn't thought of the, the, the gramophone joke yet. Yeah, the gag in Harpo's case is that everyone is just expecting another impression of Chevalier and then as it starts to become imminent you realize well Harpo's not going to sing that song <laughs> is he um, mm. and when when Chico introduces Harpo to the agent as a dancer the agent says well thank heavens no Chevalier impression 
Um, and of course, that's what he gets nevertheless. Um, the scene then sort of descends into, into physical confusion. And then the biggest surprise is that, uh, that Zeppo enters, enters the fray so vigorously, not, not just uh, in, uh, in his performance, constantly looking over uh, past Harpo towards the camera, shouting some of his lines to the agent and some of them over, over Harpo's shoulder straight to the camera. Great lines like, when I say a mansion, I mean a mansion. Um, <laughs> Uh, and also, uh, this is not monkey business, nor is it pineapples, which is interesting because pi- pineapples being one of the abandoned early titles for monkey business, when it when it was going to be much more gangster focused, it came with the title pineapples, which refers to to hand grenades. Yeah, and and that title also seems to invoke coconuts, you know, um, and, and mm. may also be a, a semi reference to that. Obviously, that material was not in this scene before. Uh, they got to Paramount. So the scene then then fades. Is that is that where it ends on stage? Does does it does it does the lights just slowly come down while they're still mid gesture, or or does it end differently? Well, in on the mezzanine, I, I think it did end this way. Generally, it, it built to this crazy chaos, everybody talking at once, and this sustained madness on stage um but um as mentioned earlier in on the mezzanine the scene also had this narrative function of setting up the second scene which takes you into the play that zeppo is pitching so it it must have ended with enough clarity to set up the scene that followed Mm. i'm not sure exactly how those beats played out in on the mezzanine but uh the second scene was behind the curtain. You know, the agency scene was done in one in front of the curtain. And then as Zeppo is describing this play that he's written, the curtain opens on the set for the second scene. The set had a balcony or a mezzanine built into it. And that's where the title comes from. Uh, it's the lobby of the fancy hotel. Um, and and in I'll Say She Is, the scene has a sort of different ending to it where the agent says, I- I'm not going to give you any work as performers but here's another way we can make some money and the agent picks up the newspaper and says you see this society woman craves excitement beautiful heiress uh, offers her hand her heart and her fortune to the man who can give her a thrill so the scene was repurposed to set up the plot of i'll say she is somewhat less graceful than its original function (laughs) how much of mezzanine survives in script form um, well, the entire script, as submitted for copyright by Herman Timberg, is in the Library of Congress. As with all Marx Brothers scripts, particularly scripts that were created before performances began, you know, it's very likely that a lot of what's in the scene was developed improvisationally by the Marx Brothers themselves. Uh, in fact, an early review of On the Mezzanine that was uh, shared with me by uh, uh, the great researcher Robert Moulton, who's also credited on the uh, Too Many Kisses uh, restoration, says that the syncopated rhyming dialogue is one way to identify Herman Timberg's authorship of vaudeville material, but that this one, probably after another couple of months, will be completely replaced with Marx Brothers improvisations. That's obviously true, but I think it is kind of telling, both in terms of the quality of Timberg's work and the exaggerated nature of the improvisational legend of the Marx Brothers, that even in 1931, 10 years after the scene was created, 
it's still very recognizably Herman Timberg. I mean, all that rhyming dialogue, you know, it must be his. So, yes, On the Mezzanine survives uh, in its original written form. And um, it is uh, unmistakably Marx Brothers material, modern Marx Brothers material, um, to a degree that I don't think Home Again would seem to be if we were lucky enough to have a surviving mm. script for that. Okay, so there the, the scene fades and there ends uh, all too swiftly. One of the most glorious bits of of, uh, of Marx comedy that we have, certainly the, the funniest and most important bit of, I, I think, comedy that any Marx brother is, is involved with outside of, of the canon before, during or after their legit film careers. It's just a, a, an enormous pity that they weren't at any other time called upon to, to contribute something when they weren't ready to. Um, as I've said before, there is this 1932 review, Paramount on Parade, which supposedly features all their big stars. It's absolutely stuffed to the gills with Chevalier. He's got about 48 numbers in it. Um, <laughs> but they're, they're nowhere to be seen, unfortunately, whereas uh, if only they'd been... Uh, called upon to to contribute something from from a you know a, a horse feathers or duck soup or whatever was was on the ramps at the time uh, and they had nothing to give we might have even got the uh, final scene of animal crackers on film yeah absolutely and and one has the distinct impression that if if it had happened again you know if they had had to come up with one more piece of material from the trunk and put it on film it might have been the Napoleon scene, you know. I mean, they might have yeah. done that on yeah. film, which, oh my God, we can only we can only dream. I, I guess maybe one reason why the theatrical agency was a better choice is because it was cheaper to costume. Yeah, and these and it's it's incredibly simply staged, isn't it? The camera is 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 more or less rooted at the front, isn't it? Yeah, I I, I can't think offhand actually of any any exchanges of, of shots. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong, but, no, I, I think but the, more more or less, it's it's just sat there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The camera moves around to find people a couple of times. But yeah, yeah. Basically, basically, it's a stage piece, you know. And in the final uh, stretch of the scene, when it all sort of just goes chaotic, there's so much happening. You know, they're moving furniture around. Um, Harpo climbs up on the desk and sits on the agent's head and a telegram is delivered, which Harpo tears up. Harpo does his (laughs) uh, milking a rubber glove bit, you know, and there's so much talk. I mean, when Mm. we had to recreate this for Alsatias, I studied that part of the scene so much to try to get things out of it, what's being said, you know. I mean, Groucho and Chico spend a, a long time at the end of this scene talking to each other on film and you can't really get much of what they're saying but boy wouldn't you like to know um yes yeah matt roper and i watched it many times we did our best to figure out what they were doing and then we would semi-improvisationally do that every night you know and just try to recreate it there's a moment where it gets kind of silent like the chaos lulls briefly and you hear just the end of a thought and Groucho was saying, and he's saying something like, uh, he's one of the worst managers, must be one of the worst managers. I would always make sure I got that in at a silent moment uh, whenever we did that scene, just for a, a touch of authenticity. Well, that brings us to the end then of our, of our look at, uh, at Too Many Kisses and, uh, and the house that Shadow's built. If you haven't um, purchased the, the disc, uh, do. It is, it is, uh, it is a, a treat. It is definitely worth adding to your 
collection. Um, so, Noah, how have our plans for world domination been going this month? Oh, you must mean our Patreon. Well, it's all going very nicely, thanks to our subscribers on Patreon. We want to thank them, as always, for their generosity, their vision, and their nice haircuts, and for making it possible for us to continue producing the Marx Brothers Council podcast. We want to thank all of our new uh, recent subscribers who climbed on board in the wake of episode 61, our interview with Don Scardino. And we just want to say that if, for some reason, you are not yet among our Patreon members, there's never been a better time to join us. There are now five monthly membership levels, the first of which will run you a mere $3 a month. That's less than 10 cents a day. It's one seven-cent nickel and one three-cent penny to be in the VIP room of the world's greatest ongoing Marx Brothers party. Subscriber perks at the higher levels include beautiful gift items like the Bogard After the Hunt poster, the Huxley Collegiate T-shirt, which our listeners can't see this, but Matthew happens to be wearing one right now and looking very handsome in it indeed. There's also the Hotel Coconut tote bag and the Kippered Herring Barrel coffee mug. And at the top four levels, starting at $6 a month, you can be among the lucky collectors who receive our patron postcard, a new, beautiful, exclusive, and original card in your actual physical mailbox every month. The October postcard number 10 uh, has already found its way through the mail. Perhaps you're gazing upon it right now as you listen to us. It is an exceptional one featuring an exquisite Earl painting by Richard Abraham. And we still have a small number of those cards in stock here, so it's not too late to get one, as well as all future postcards and access to all of our monthly bonus segments if you subscribe now. Just go to MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com and click the big orange Patreon button, or go to Patreon.com slash MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast. And remember, Emmy Award-winning producers don't come cheap. Could, could we talk about the special secret thing we got coming up for subscribers? I guess it'd be okay to mention it. If you, if you want to let the cat out of the bag. Okay, well, in honor of the new Beatles song, uh, where they've taken a old recording of John Lennon and crafted a, a new song around it, we are putting together a podcast where we have taken old random test uh, recordings of Jay Hopkins, and we are going to craft a brand new podcast. We put a lot of work into this. We're, we we got Giles Martin on retainer. He'll be joining us in a few weeks to put the finishing touches on. So that's it. So all you subscribers, you, you can look forward to this. And I should say that you guys are locked in and you can't cancel your subscriptions now. So don't even think about it. <laughs> it's called Then Again. <laughs> I have no idea what you people are talking about. I haven't got a clue. (laughs) (laughs) And if you subscribe to our podcast on Patreon, you can be the recipient of empty promises like that. (laughs) We're going to finish off now with our our final song, as usual. And I've chosen something from uh, the film The Smiling Lieutenant, which is the uh, Chevalier film that is is being publicized in House That Shadows Built. And it's got this delightful little number in it uh, performed by Claudette Colbert and uh, Miriam Hopkins and it's called Jazz Up Your Lingerie Jazz up your lingerie Just like a melody 
Brothers Council podcast is produced by Bob Cassell. Matthew Cunningham's books, The Annotated Marx Brothers, and That's Me, Groucho, are published by McFarland. Noah Diamond's book, Give Me a Thrill, The Story of All Say She Is, is published by Bear Manor Media. For more info on this and all episodes, visit our website at MarxBrothersCouncilPodcast.com. Also look for us on X. And for the place to talk Marx and meet fellow fans, join us on the lively Marx Brothers Council Facebook group. See you next time!